We're so excited. Registration is officially open for our weekend of workshops in Annapolis, Maryland, September 21st through 24th. You can visit WhenKidsSayTheyreTrans.com and click on Weekend of Workshops to find more information. We've had some really, really special events so far and we're really looking forward to this one in September. Yes, and if you've attended previous events, please know this is going to be all new material, workshop style, based on our new book, When Kids Say They're Trans. So we hope to see you there and check our website for more information. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi there. So today, Stella and I are joined once again by Dr. Julia Mason. Welcome to the show again. Thanks for having me. So typically we have an introduction and we kind of give a little bit of a bio, but we would encourage anybody who wants to, to check out our episode with Dr. Stephen Levine, where we gave a little more info about Julia. Today was originally a vision to be a quick update episode because the American Academy of Pediatrics recently released a statement saying that they're going to authorize a systematic review of the evidence. But we realize this is such a convoluted story and it can be a bit confusing to understand, even for us. So we wanted J Julia to just give us a bit of a timeline to understand, like, what is the AAP? How did they even get behind affirmative care in the first place? What has been the kind of relationship between SEGM and the AAP? And then what can we make of this statement that they released recently? So we're going to try to do that today. And okay. I think we should begin at the beginning because I, I get lost, even though I've followed it valiantly, but I still get lost. So it's easy to get lost. So do, do you want to bring us back to the beginning there, Julia, and walk yes. us through? Right. <laughs> okay. So the American Academy of Pediatrics is my professional organization. It represents pediatricians in the United States and Canada. And they say they have like 67,000 members. I believe you need to be a board certified pediatrician to join and to be a fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics. And then you can put, you know, FAAP after your name when you sign it. If As long as you keep giving them $700 a year. <laughs> So um, they, are, they are a large organization. They are a multi-million dollar organization. And the money, although they must get a lot of money if there's 67,000 people giving them $700 a year, that's not the main source of their income. The main source of their income is um, agreements with big corporate um, pharmacy companies, formula companies, toy companies, things like that. And the beginning, as far as I know, of the gender um, was Jason Rafferty was a doctor in training. I, I believe he was still in training in 2017, and he approached the AAP leadership, and he sort of, I'm imagining that he sort of excitedly, you know, said, hey, hey, the new civil rights movement, trans, you know, trans rights are, are human rights and we need to be on the right side of history and we, the AAP needs to, you know, make a statement about this. We got to put ourselves out there. And the leadership 
which I'm guessing would be more people in their late 50s, early 60s, you know, established doctors, um, were sort of like, oh, right, yeah, sure. Okay, why don't you write something up and uh, we'll take a look. And he was training at Brown in Rhode Island and he was a protege of Michelle Forcier, who if you've seen the Matt Walsh documentary, What is a Woman? She, I always think of her as the chicken lady now <laughs> because he said, you know, a chicken is a hen because she lays eggs. And Michelle Forcier was like, can a chicken cry? Can a chicken commit suicide? And that was really something. So so she solidified her reputation. She solidified her reputation as an interesting human being. But I see her as, as a true believer. You know, she really yeah. thinks that she that she can look into the face of a child and see their individual gender soul. She, she knows it. Or to be fair, I mean, I think the most generous interpretation is she thinks the child can effectively communicate within what is within his or her gendered soul. Yes. Right? So and she, that... she very much takes the perspective that like, she says even in that film, the child's in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. We are all in the back seat. Yeah. So it's yeah. very child-led. Very child led. She's she's like Diane Aronsoft in that response in that respect. So it's very much like the idea that the, that you have a gender identity. It's internal, eternal, and immutable. And all you have to do is figure out what it is, and then you've got it, and then you move forward on that. So yeah. So, and then Jason Rafferty, he's like he's taken medical school. He's been drinking from the fire hose of medical information for years, and so. His established I, 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 attending. Yeah. Can I just put in about Kevin Rafferty? And you made the point earlier, Julian. I thought it was a, such a good point. He was doing the appropriate thing insofar as he had, he had done his study and he was presuming the chain of trust was solid, as we all mm -hmm. do. And he presumed everything that he, he had read was, was uh, well-studied, quality yeah. research. And you when you come from that point, because we have to, that's how we... We presume that everything works, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like from the emergency cord to our car, we're presuming it's all on solid ground. And us three happen to know that there's a lot of very flaky research behind this, but he didn't know it. So he was the up and coming. I just wanted. Right. Yeah. He's yeah, a young man. He's early in his he's early in his career. He's been told this is how it is and he believes this is how it is. So and he's fired up. And so he makes this statement. And the statement comes out in October of 2018. And it's got a really unusual um, sort of caveat at the end <laughs> that says that this one person, Jason Rafferty, he conceptualized it, will, he will crafted I, it. Will I yeah, read it out? Yeah. So at the end of it, it does feel a bit like throwing him under the bus. Well, in my eyes, in my layman's <laughs> eyes, Dr. Rafferty conceptualized the statement, drafted the initial manuscript, reviewed and revised the manuscript, approved the final manuscript as submitted and agrees to be accountable for all aspects of the work. Yeah, it's just it's amazing. It's like a, a one person checks and balances system. Right. It's he reviewed it himself. He checked his own work. Yeah. And it's and it's and which is which is why it's not surprising that when James Cantor, who's an experienced sexologist, took a look at this and, you know, it says things like if you have a child 
who tells you that, you know, that although they're born a boy, they're really a girl, there are three things you can do. And one is you could try to change their mind and that's conversion therapy and it's evil and bad. And then it gives references. And, and James Canner's like, oh wow, conversion therapy on gender dysphoric kids? Never heard of that. I'm gonna go look at the references. And so he goes and he looks at the references. <laughs> and may and I say, like, I would hate I James Cantor to look at any work. <laughs> he is yeah. razor sharp. <laughs> oh, you don't want him turning his gimlet eye on your work unless you haven't published it yet. That would be perfect. <laughs> but I'd say, move on there now, James. Look at somebody else. <laughs> no, no, you want to, you want to, you want to engage him before you get published. <laughs> yeah, he's. But pretty... what did he find? I so, mean, so, okay, he looked, sorry, so the references. He, yeah, so he's following the references, and he looks, and he just recognizes the names and the dates, and he's like, I know those papers. Those mm. aren't about kids. That's mm. about adult male homosexuals. That's about like giving electric oh, shocks wow. to adult male homosexuals to make them not be gay. That is not about you know that's conversion therapy, but that's not about yeah, trying to convince yeah. a kid that they should stick with the, the sex they were born with. And so once he saw that, cause that's very early in the paper, then his radar had just gone off and he just started checking all of the references and he found many errors to the point where he wrote it up and he got it published. And the title of his paper, which came out early in 2019 is fact checking the AAP. Mm. And when I was, getting concerned about this whole topic, I actually found James Cantor's paper before I found the original uh, AAP statement. And when, it's, when you think about it, it was called an AAP statement as such. And mm -hmm. so it was, there was the disclaimer of James Rafferty, the up and coming, but actually yeah. it could, it kind of optics wise, it looked like. Oh yeah. It looked like. Oh, the AAP, AAP totally yeah. is saying, this is the AAP statement. This, yeah. is, this is the American Academy of Pediatrics opinion on this thing and then they sneak that little they sneak that little yeah. caveat at the very end can i just pause and ask you a question because i'm not a doctor and i i'm not familiar with these types of documents mm -hmm. is that common or or typically if a body like the aap puts out a statement are there many many people involved in the writing of it and the, like what's normal because i don't really know yeah. if that's weird or not that is weird. Okay. <laughs> that is okay. that is weird. Um, so it sounds weird. I yeah, just it is. No, it's sure. definitely weird. There's usually, it's usually that horribly painful process of writing by committee, right? Like all these different people, and you have to take everybody's experience into account. And yeah, this so this is, is a, as weird as a chicken crying. It is as weird as a chicken crying. <laughs> Got it. Keep Title going. of the episode. Keep going. <laughs> Okay, so James Canner did his fact checking, and um, oh gosh, in 2019 I went to the national meeting, and I tried to I tried to engage people on this topic, but I found that the gender doctors were all just convinced that they were life saving heroes, and. The, and did, the rank did James's and, yeah. did James's paper get much traction because he's he's a brilliant it, researcher? Yeah, no, he didn't. It didn't really. No, I mean, just there were just skeptics were passing it around between themselves, okay. but I don't think it got any big. You know, right. it didn't okay. get any. So any people big were presuming the, the AAP definitely did yeah. not respond. There was no okay. response from the American Academy of Pediatrics to his fact checking. And that's what I feel. I feel like that's where the AAP kind of messed up is 
they allowed this young doctor to make this statement. Somebody smelled a rat because they put that caveat on the end. Like someone was uncomfortable about it. You know, someone's like, we should make sure everybody knows we didn't write. But but then when it started to be attacked, they just sort of circled the wagons. You know, they're just like, nope, this is our position. We're sticking with our position. And, And they're still doing that. Really? And did James Cantor say more than uh, this is kind of, let's say the conversion therapy analogy, it, it was inappropriate because it wasn't about gender and it was from mm-hmm. decades of, did he have other big... He had other, of, yeah, yeah, he had other concerns because they basically seriously misstated the previous literature on gender dysphoria yeah. because the, 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 the literature in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s showed that anywhere from... 66, 67% to to 90% of kids would desist on their own if you do watchful waiting, you know, with the onset of puberty. And they just, they did not, they did not share that information. They, you know, they, in fact, they, they implied that that wasn't true in this statement or he implied, I guess I should say he, because it's Jason Rafferty. And then you, do you saw the doctor. So sorry, you could go on slash. Sorry. No, I was just wondering. Did do you think that this created any kind of shake shakiness to their credibility? Like, do you know other doctors who had been following this issue who thought this whole thing undermined the AAP, or are people just so busy that they don't really notice? Or I'm wondering how big of a deal is it? Because like in our world, we're following this stuff closely. Right. But is that is that something anybody else noticed? Right. I I actually think the latter is more accurate that most pediatricians are really busy. Like myself, I did Mm -hmm. not, they didn't do a big fanfare when it came out, as far as I know. You know, they just kind of quietly published it. And they're regularly putting out things about asthma management and, you know, feeding babies and things like that. So um, my impression is that the vast majority of pediatricians just don't know what's going on here are confused by the topic and what they want to do is they want to refer to the specialist Mm -hmm. and then of course the problem is that the specialists are all true believers and and so you're not getting any kind of differential diagnosis that was one of my first red flags is i referred i referred a kid that really seemed to be a lifelong gender dysphoric kid and so when they started giving her testosterone i wasn't surprised but then there was an, another one that came in that i really didn't think sort of met the criteria as far as i knew and then she was also affirmed and started on testosterone and got a mastectomy and then i'm like wait what you know what are you what are really? y'all doing over there and uh, that's when i found james canner and nah, 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 all that okay. kind of stuff so um wow. yeah in 2019 i just discovered that most pediatricians were confused by this and you know wanted to know more and there was just there was already a gulf and it just it just grew 2020 oh i went and then i I went to my area meeting where my region is oregon washington idaho alaska hawaii and i that was the only place where i could stand up and ask a question really you know and so i went there and i stood up and i said i'm worried about this i feel like kids are being transitioned who don't meet criteria and um the guy up at the dais said well what you need to do is you need to submit a resolution to the annual leadership forum 
because that's how rank and file pediatricians influence the behavior of the AAP. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. And I sat back down. And then when the meeting was over, I went up to him and I'm like, okay, a resolution. How do I do that? Where do I send it? Who do I talk to? And he was very cooperative, you know, sharing all the information. But I got this feeling that like telling people to write a resolution was sort of his go-to strategy for uh-huh. annoying people because it would shut them down usually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was already in Segum, like Segum already existed. And so I knew that I could have help to do this, which I needed because the deadline was in like a week. <laughs> but I, I, wrote, I submitted two resolutions that year. Everything got delayed because of the pandemic. And so it ended up being like a Zoom meeting in 2020. And my resolution sort of came up, but because it didn't have a sponsor, it just sort of, it, nobody seconded it and died a quiet death. And then the next year in 21, um, a different pediatrician who I didn't know at the time, Sarah Palmer, she submitted a resolution also ex- ex- you know, expressing concern about what's going on with the gender transition of kids. And that one got a second at the meeting, but it, then it got voted down. But that year, because it was still the lockdown and the pandemic, they put all the resolutions online and they sent emails to us and they're like, hey, the resolutions are all online. You should go and look. You can give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. You can comment. And her resolution got a lot of comments and they were mostly positive, you know, like three to one positive. And it was in the top five in terms of getting votes. But still, I need to be clear. This is like dozens of people, I think even less than 100. And there's, you know, not thousands. But still, of the people who cared enough to go to the website and then to look at the resolutions and then to click on things, it was again, three to one positive for her resolution. And then at the meeting, it got a second, but it got voted down. And then the next year, oh wait, there's more to say about 21. In 21, that was the year that Segum applied for and received permission to have a table at the convention hall. The national AAP convention was going to be in Philadelphia. And so they were going to, every time they have the convention, there's this big convention hall and the formula companies and the drug companies and the children's hospitals and the stuttering association and the peanut growers and, you know, all the people, they have booths (laughs) and they, they give away trinkets and they try to get your attention as you're walking around and uh, you sign up for samples to be sent to your office. For and a crazy like second, so, I thought you said the penis growers. So like, oh, no, penis. Really, really, Julia? <laughs> no, because medicine style. That was the whole thing. I think I talked about that at the Genspec conference, that, that pediatricians had it all wrong about feeding babies. Yes. And then we figured out... And then we figured out that actually it's not a good idea to put off That's peanuts really until they're two. You want to give I, them exposure. Yeah. And can I just take this opportunity to point out Sagam Society for Evidence-Based Gender Medicine. Beautiful website, you know, really, really quality kind of research and quality mm-hmm. kind of um, e- um, work. And so just to, just in case anybody doesn't know. Well, you know thank I mean? you. Yeah, yeah. No, really, <laughs> so, if anybody wants yeah. to get up to date on, I don't know, the science and the lack of science, you go to segumsegm.org and then you click on the tab for spotlights and spotlights Mm. are what we call sort of like our little essays. And those things are in my committee. They are are checked and double checked. And if you scroll to the bottom 
and sort of read from the bottom to the top, you'll have a chronological history of what's happened in the in the in sort of scientific literature. Yeah. yeah and, and just, you know, a lot of people who listen to us that sometimes they'll say, my kids sent me this paper that says that oh, um, yeah. puberty blockers are safe and reversible. How do I respond to them? And just as a caveat, we don't think debating with your kid about science is a good True. idea at all. But if no. you're for your own information, if you're trying to understand what are the gaps in the research? What does the science really say? Segum is expert at this. I mean, this is what Segum does. You guys have analyzed in excruciating detail all of the kind of papers and science and, and data around gender medicine for kids. So yeah. keep going. Yeah, yeah, I'm really proud. Our, and our latest one is about um, Denmark yeah. has recently, you know, decided not to just trans all the kids that show up. <laughs> so, so um, right. So we had a table. And it was like close to the Mayo Clinic. And I remember my husband picked out the table. He's like, oh, I got a spot. And we're by the Mayo Clinic. It's great. And um, we were like deciding what our banner was going to say. And we were deciding what sort of swag we were going to give out. And then we got an email from, um, from the people who were running the thing. And they're like, the AAP reserves the right to decide who can come. And uh, you can't come. And they gave us our money back. <laughs> And, and we were, we were, and then as it turned out, the entire, the entire in-person oh, conference course. was canceled. Cause remember everyone was so optimistic. The vaccine came out in the spring of 21 and it's like, oh, by the fall, everything would be great. And then we had the Nothing Omicron happened. and blah, blah, yeah, blah. So yeah, so it didn't happen. And uh, maybe they saved us all money cause we didn't have to cancel tickets, but that got us written up in the wall street journal because it was news that like they let us have a table and then they canceled us and, and they didn't really have any reason why they canceled us. And so, so for 22, I submitted a resolution. It was my turn again. <laughs> and I had four co-authors. There were five of us, one of which was Sarah Palmer. Another one was Patrick Hunter. And we submitted a resolution and our major ask was that the American Academy of Pediatrics conduct a systematic review of the evidence. And that's because a systematic review of the evidence is sort of the pinnacle of yeah. evidence-based medicine. It's where you actually publish your plan for your review before you do the review and before you publish the review. So you're like, we're going to be looking at all English language stuff from this date to this date, and these are our keywords. And that means that if you later publish the review and you leave something out, somebody can say, hey, I looked at your search criteria in PRISM and, you know, Carlos at L22, you don't have in there. So what's up? You know, oh, so yes. you can be, you can get checked. And then another key thing about a systematic review of the evidence is that you, you evaluate each paper for bias. Brilliant. Using and there's a there's a laid out strategy Which for evaluating all the papers. Which is in this field more than anything. Systematic yes. reviews is what we need. If it's we're going what we to need. get and anywhere so with gender, it's what Hillary Cass did yeah. in England for the NHS, and it's what they did in Finland, and it's what they did in Sweden, and in all these places they took a they took a harsh look. You know, they look at, they took a careful look at the literature, and they're like, yeah, this really is not strong. This is not a strong body of work. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. 
To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, GetA. GetA is an association of therapists who believe that individuals experiencing gender-related concerns ought to be treated using a whole-person approach. We connect like-minded clinicians, provide educational resources and training, and help people with gender dysphoria find the right help. Visit GetA at genderexploratory.com. And now back to the conversation. I want to touch on something there too, because this is going to come up as we approach the most recent statement by the AAP. But in in the UK, JIDS was the gender identity service, the largest gender identity service there. And the systematic review was conducted by an independent third body, which was Hillary Cass and her team. Yes. And I just want to ask, in the world of systematic reviews, which seem to be the most rigorous way to identify and flush out bias and errors with the, you know, the papers as they're written individually, mm-hmm. is it common that the systematic review is performed by an independent third party? Or is it typically the, the medical body itself that does a review on themselves? I think, it's, I think it's expected that it's done by a third party. Okay. I don't think it really qualifies as a systematic review if it's not. Right, because that's the checks and balances system of one. Yeah. Like yeah. We can't do that. That's not really checks and balances. Okay. So what you were looking for was good for the AAP, was good for gender, was good for right. everybody. Yeah, I was trying. Really I was really thing. trying to like bring them back to reality. I'm like, hey, guys. And up their, up their game from young Rafferty's <laughs> effort. Do you Who know conceptualized, I mean? drafted, yeah, and reviewed. Yeah. Yes. To bring it yes. into a kind of a, a high level review yeah. of, of what is the evidence. Right. Yeah. My, my resolution didn't say we need to stop doing this. It's no. like we just need to get a look at the evidence and then follow where the evidence leads. Brilliant. And so that year. Um, so what is that? That's 22. 22. It's they still put the resolutions up on on the website and emailed all the pediatricians, but they had a new rule <laughs> and the new rule was that unsponsored resolutions, you're not allowed to comment or give a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So they separated it out on the webpage. There was one place where you could click and look at all of the resolutions in one giant document and read through them, and ours was number 27. But then in order to do any interacting, you had to go to a different part, a different piece of the page, and it was a drop-down list, and it just went from 26 to 28. 27 was not available because we didn't have a sponsor. What does it mean to have a sponsor? Right. So um, this is this is one way that they control things. I'm beginning to realize that the AAP sort of has the appearance of democracy, but it's not as democratic as it appears because your resolution won't get anywhere without a sponsor and you have to be sponsored by a member of leadership. So that would be like a state chapter president or a committee chairman or a section leader. There's a lot of leadership in the AAP, um, but they're all, you know, yeah. So it's all different things like that. You have to have somebody who is in leadership 
second. You can't just have like another pediatrician second you because there were five of us, but that didn't matter. Okay. We didn't have a leadership person. And from okay. my read of it back then, and I, I did find it difficult to follow, the the sudden incoming new rule of you need to have a sponsor was a kind of a pivotal role for uh, for me anyway, of, or a pivotal mm. moment for me to think, whoa, is this being blocked? Is, th- is this actually yeah. uh, darker than, than messy, tedious administration, if you follow me? Yeah, it felt really personal. Yeah, <laughs> it, felt, it, it really it. felt like it was aimed at my resolution. It, it just did. Like I mean, like in the first time in the history of the AAP, they've got this new rule that if your resolution's not sponsored, you can't. And so what happened was all these people left comments on resolution number 28. And uh, that actually got written up like in the Daily Mail, you know, like the people who were complaining. Why can't oh, I comment commenting on Commenting on your resolution in the space for resolution 28. Exactly. you guys were 27. Yeah, we were 27, so they left comments on 28 saying, hey, because I want to say that 27 is a good resolution. Why can't I do that? Wow, yeah. okay. So that happened in 22, and then I went to the meeting. Well, the, the leadership meeting is a separate thing from the national meeting. And at the leadership meeting, which was in August, they it was the same kind of a thing. It just it just died a quiet death because it was an unsponsored resolution. Uh, we we got involved a little bit there. Jen Specht did an open letter to the AAP saying, "Oh right, yeah." yeah. And we said, you know, what's going down? Because that's why I remember the whole tricky resolution scenario. And we asked, like, uh, an open letter to the AAP. What's the problem with a systematic review? It it is mm-hmm. a it is a, a, a really needed for for this field. And it had thousands of downloads. It was really, really popular. It was unbelievable for what I remember because I felt at the time, oh, I don't have time to write this, don't have time to get anything to do with this. It's tricky and complex and everything. But actually, it really hit a nerve with an awful lot of people that why mm. would you block a systematic review of the of the hottest, yeah. fastest growing issue of our day? It, it, it's a mad thing to to resist. Who could possibly be against looking at the evidence? Like, yeah. how does that even, In a if you're confident, then, then you do the review. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's a sign of uh, lack of confidence, I guess. And the media <laughs> took up on it. Like you say, the Daily Mail and a few of the mainstream media got into this point because they could all mm-hmm. see that there was something incredibly fishy about it. Everybody who read yeah. it found it complicated to read. And the result was like, what? Why is the AAP, this massive organization with 67,000 members, it just, Mm -hmm. it was was like wrapped up in a boat, perfectly positioned to carry out this. It was, yeah, very, very obvious. And then they, they continued. So in 23, they made a new, new rule, which was that if, if the leadership decides that your resolution is unnecessary, they're just going to bin it. They're not even going to share it with the uh, the membership. And so that that made us nervous. And so like on so, your so resolution, strong, you can only... The strong leadership was turned into a dictatorship at this stage. Yes, exactly. <laughs> We're going to decide like which resolutions the membership can even see, right? Yeah. Like so the previous year, you can't comment. And then this year, we're going to determine what you can see. It is shocking. And so yeah. we, you only get four whereases and we used like two or three of them 
to talk about why our resolution, our 2023 resolution was needed, you know? What's because a, sorry, we what's worried. a whereas? We it's like if Oh, it's it's the down. format of the resolution. Okay. So like, okay. whereas the American Academy of Pediatrics has stated blah, blah, blah. And whereas, da, da, da. Therefore, let it be determined that, and then you have your ask. Okay. It's just, it's, it's very archaic. I'm imagining right? like a bunch of guys with like white curly wigs exactly. and like gavels and things. But, okay. <laughs> There's a whole, like, that's why I was so glad I had help because like formatting it is wild yeah. and okay. you've got to have like line numbers and yeah. And it's, it's all like old law. I'm sure, it, I'm sure it works this way in a lot of uh, legislative bodies. Okay, so, so they put this new, new rule out. The new, new rule is saying that okay. we reserve the right to just bin your resolution, which alarmed us. And then when they did, they didn't bin it. I think somebody got smart, like realized the Streisand effect is yeah. a thing. Yes. And so they didn't bin it. They did put it up. But they had, they had um, when you went to the website where you could comment, they had very clearly, um, before you comment, Comments are moderated, and any comments that don't pertain to the resolution will be removed. So they okay. were removing the opportunity for people to say, comment on our resolution. Like, our resolution this year was 37. I think it's weird we keep getting. And so you couldn't leave a comment on number 38 saying, this is about actually 37. about number 37. So yeah, so they, they did that. And I, it's I've rough. been joking that I imagine the next year they'd be like, and <laughs> if your resolution is written by Julia Mason, you can't have it. If but, your initials are JM. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It just kept getting more and more specific against us. And that this year, I submitted a resolution with 23 co-authors. So it was 23 and me. I was, I, you know, I sent out some emails like, hey, you. do you want to co-sponsor this? And I got a lot more than 23, but then I'd say, okay, are you an active fellow of the American Academy of Pediatrics? Which means, are you giving them $700 a year? And a lot of them were like, oh, I let that lapse. I'm so annoyed with them. I don't want to send them my money. What about leadership, though? Because, I mean, I think one of the previous rules was that there was that there had to be a sponsor, which was a leader. Like, right. Did you and have any it... relationships with leadership? I have not gotten anywhere. I reached out. I, I, people gave me some suggestions. Okay. They're like, what about this lady that runs the committee on breastfeeding? She's, you know, and I, I, so I sent out emails and nothing. I got nothing. Okay. I think it's a pretty tight. Sh what I'm discovering is the American <laughs> Academy of Pediatrics leadership is a very tight Strong. ship. Like every two years, we theoretically, like we vote for the AAP president. But I'm realizing now that there's no open primary system. Like we are presented with two candidates and then we get to pick, Okay. you know. And I, I remember something else that was kind of quirky around that time. I remember Jen Speck was commenting on it. It was along the lines of, they said it wasn't popular and yet it actually was. The numbers, they said, oh, they only got so-and-so numbers, but actually mm -hmm. th that wasn't appropriate. Right. Well, yeah, when I said it was just, it was dozens, it wasn't thousands. Yeah. yeah. So they're like, oh, only, only 87 out of 67,000 right. pediatricians voted for this. And it's like, well, but it was 87 for 
and 18 against, you know? Like, and yeah, out, yeah. what's the most votes they ever get for anything? That's like what I was just about to say. It's and not when like you they're com- getting thousands. When you compared the ones before and the ones after, it was like 64 mm-hmm. votes and, you mm-hmm. know what I mean, 72 votes. So actually... Yeah, the vast actually- majority of resolutions got like one or two votes, yeah, like nothing. Yeah, it was comparatively yeah. very popular if right. you compared with other resolutions. But they If said, you compared it to other it resolutions... Really in yeah. Oh, that was, yeah, that, that was like the AAP newspaper yeah had that article saying oh yeah only this tiny number of pediatricians yeah and that's definitely you know you feel like they keep trying to do that they keep trying to tell anybody who disagrees you're wrong and you're weird and you are alone yeah you're the only one who feels like that yeah when i really think that probably a majority of actual pediatricians are concerned about this so that was at the beginning of 2023 (laughs) Yeah, yeah, the deadline okay. was April 1st. Yeah. Okay. So then catch us up to between then and now. Yeah, something so has then changed in, big time. Something has changed. So as then, far as we can tell. In well, no, August. We're, we're nearly had... four years in now because you, you first got oh, yeah. in 2019. So it's, yeah. Yeah, it's gone on. It keeps okay. going. Yeah. And so um, they had the annual leadership conference <laughs> in, I think, Evanston, Illinois. It's a suburb of Chicago. And they have it there every year and that's where they vote on the resolutions and they also had a board meeting and because they talked about how a unanimous 16-4 and the 16 member thing is the board of directors you know for the AAP and three of those 16 people are the immediate the the newly elected AAP president the AAP AAP president and the uh, immediate past AAP president. So that's kind of how they manage those people is you do two years where you're on the board, but you're not acting as the president. You're learning. (laughs) Then you do two years where you're the figurehead. And I'm pretty sure that just about anything you say has been written for you. And then you do two years where you're the old hand, you know, advising. But that 16 member (laughs) board voted unanimously to sort of reaffirm the uh, the 2018 statement that was written by Jason Rafferty all by his lonesome. And yet, at the exact same time, they said, we're going to reaffirm that and we're going to commission a systematic review of the evidence. Yay! And they did not mention me. <laughs> they did not mention my resolutions. Sour. But luckily, I've been noisy enough that like the reporter for the New York Times called me and it was interesting it was really interesting for me because i've talked to her for years Mm. and she told me over a year ago like well i can get information from you but i could never quote you in the new york times because i'm like you know toxic i'm i'm a right winger and i was like that is so ridiculous (laughs) did you you take her up on that what what well, I mean, I talked to her, but no, but the thing was, she was just like, yeah, you know, you're not, you're not going to be quoted. Wow. But then she called me, what is that, a couple of weeks ago? Yeah. And she's like, you know, she sent me an email. And she's like, can we talk? And I talked to her. I talked to her like on my way to work. And then um, I got to work and I got my coffee. And then she, she called me again. And I talked to her right before I saw, I saw my first patient. And it was funny to me because she was trying really hard to get a statement from me where I was agreeing with all the state legislatures that are banning mm. care. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I, 
I don't. I don't agree with that. I, I don't think that legislatures should be dictating to doctors what they do. It's just, it's a bad idea. I think that medical boards and medical organizations should be telling doctors what to do, not not legislators. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so she tried it like four different ways. And then I ended up with a really nice quote, which was, we are making strong recommendations based on weak evidence. And so I was, I was very happy with that. And then the Wall Street Journal had more detail about what happened at the meeting. And they did say to the Wall Street Journal uh, reporter that, that they're going to do the systematic review of the evidence, and then they will alter their, their advice, possibly, as you know if it shows that they should. But then they also made some, you know, bold but statements it, like, it, we're confident that, you know, nothing's going to change. Kind of doesn't, the, 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 it doesn't really matter what they think. The, the evidence won't be there. They can keep looking. It'll be like the, looking for gold during the gold. <laughs> right. they, won't, they won't find the evidence because you and I and all of us know how little evidence is there. out there. Yeah, it's not there. It doesn't, it doesn't exist. Um, it's not there. I mean, yeah, we've, even the Dutch study is not all that. It's just, it's just wild. It's a wild situation we're in. Um, so, so yeah, we will, (laughs) I'm really curious. I'm really curious to see what happens next. I'm very glad that they're doing a systematic review of the evidence. Well done, Julia. I'm pretty confident that they're not going to be able Mm -hmm. to find strong evidence to support what they've been recommending. Um, my, my, my intuition is that what they're going to do is they're going to slowly and carefully change the definition of affirmative care while loudly trumpeting that they are for affirmative care and they always have been. That's so interesting. Because they started to do that last year. Um, oh, yeah. I had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal with Lior Sapir, and we were criticizing the American Academy of Pediatrics for not looking at the evidence. And they responded, and you know their letter was published, and they said, "Well, you know, for the, the you know affirmative care is not necessarily medicines and surgery. In fact, for the vast majority of children, it's it's just the opposite." And I was like, awesome, tell me more about this. What's the opposite? What is the opposite of medicines and surgery? And, and you know, I'd really like to hear about this new definition of affirmative care. Mm-hmm. So that was, that was a year ago. So they're gonna keep doing that. And I'm fine with it. I just, I just want things to change. I, yeah. I do not need to break them down. One of the things that um, they said in the statement about you know, launching this review of the evidence is something like, um, the AAP will invite members and other stakeholders to share input. And I'm wondering, yes. is that a common part of a systematic review? Because it seems quite counter. Well, with the actually, goals I think the when review. when they said that, they weren't talking about the systematic review. They were talking about the revision of the statement, the okay. revision of the AAP guidance, and and that's pretty boilerplate for for guidance you know and i imagine that when they whoever wrote that sentence was thinking we will have trans people on this committee mm-hmm. that go you know that comes up with the new but i saw that and i'm like yes you need to have parents you need to have affirming parents and you yeah. need to have 
you know, uh, gender skeptical parents on that committee and you need to have uh, transitioned people and you need to have detransitioned people on that committee. We need to have a broad range sure. of outlooks to come up with a good policy. How, how does it make sense for them to say as a part of its mission, the AAP will continue to ensure young people get reproductive and gender affirming care that they need? and are seen, heard, and valued as they are. I mean, those things seen, heard, and valued is not necessarily at all congruent with getting gender-affirming care. But, I mean, how, right. how can they say, we're going to review the evidence to make sure what the right steps are, and mm -hmm. at the same time, we're just going to keep plowing ahead with what we're doing now? I just don't understand. <laughs> is it because they're You're changing right. the definition of gender-affirming care? So I that think that's how they're going to do it. psychologically support everybody. Yay. Right. Yeah, they're going to change the definition and they're, you know, they're doing a reverse ferret, right? And they're trying to do it quietly. Because... Wait, what's a reverse ferret? <laughs> I don't know. It just, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's a British phrase. I think it's wonderful, though. I it's basically when you just totally, you totally change your position, you know? Okay. And I think it's just because ferrets are weasels, right? And they just, they turn on a dime. Okay, fair exactly. enough. So. Yeah, a reverse spirit. Oh, it's used by uh, private eye to describe when a government or media outlet suddenly reverses. Huh. Oh, there we go. There you go. Every so, day is a school from day. private eye. <laughs> um, I like it, though. Yeah. But it's, they, you know, it's their language. They're much better with it than we are. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think they're, they're in the middle of their reverse ferret, and they're trying to do it quietly because they know that if they do it obviously, then all of their current supporters are going to go ballistic. Mm -hmm. But there's really no way to thread this needle. They're gonna have to decide at some point. And, and I really don't know what happens. I've been, you know, the AP could be brought up as a defendant in one of these lawsuits. Yeah. Because what all the judges have been listening to is when they say, oh, you know, every major medical mm -hmm. organization in the United mm -hmm. States thinks that this is the way to go. And so at some point, you know, I don't think it's going to all come down to Jason Rafferty's estate. You know, <laughs> I don't think that's going to hold up <laughs> their, little, their little caveat. Do you know? What do you I think will happen? I don't know what will happen. Uh, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm not a lawyer, and I haven't been in a courtroom in... 15 years so yeah it's it's obvious that there's there's got to be a lot of conflicting voices within AAP members and what their perspectives are there was this kind mm -hmm. of blog post posted on aap.org written by t two nurses I think that says we support transgender and gender diverse youth and they're basically mm -hmm. saying it's important to keep affirming and asking kids what pronouns they want. And they reference the Trevor Project and like a lot of sources and pieces of information that anybody who's looked into this even yeah. vaguely it's like, knows it's not, not accurate. Yeah. Well, yeah, they I mean, kind they of reference the 2015. Exactly. ROGD. I mean, there's and a lot that, of weird that, stuff in there. Just for listeners, if, if you see somebody bringing out, hauling out that 2015 transgender survey, just mm -hmm. go and read it and know yourself. Oh, right. Okay. That's where we're at. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. it's low I mean, that quality. Was, that was, that, it, it wasn't designed to be yeah. anything about medical research. No. It was designed to was be a, a lobbying yeah. um, paper. And so it was, it was 99% online and 
We have no idea if people filled it out 15 times. Yeah. 15 and there were a remarkable times. number of people who said they turned 18 on the day they filled out the, the, the survey. Yeah. And it was just super unrepresentative of anything. I and guess hold uh, out what was like 73% of people who said they took puberty blockers said they took them after the age of 18. So it's just, not, yeah, not it's, it's a nonsense possible. document, mm -hmm. these but there's 27,000 responses. And so you can run it through the, the statistics software and generate correlations right. yeah. and then publish those in the top medical journals of the world yeah. because we live in the upside down. <laughs> I don't know. It's so crazy. Do you have any thoughts for other physicians who uh, maybe they're part of the AAP or they're kind of watching this on the periphery? Is there anything that physicians sh should or could do to, I don't know, I have no idea what I'm even asking, yeah. but like what should concerned physicians be doing or thinking about? I, I, you know, I've been thinking like it would really be great if if somebody conducted an actual survey of pediatricians, you know, because I'm telling you that I think, yeah. Yeah. but I don't actually know. So it would be great to have some hard data. Yeah. Um, people can, people can, people can, you know, go to segum.org. They can, they can give us money. <laughs> um, but yeah, they can, you know what? A really good thing to do is to write a letter to your local organization and your local newspaper. Okay. Keeping it local is really good. I think the way this changes is person by person. It got messed up from the top down, but I think we need to get it straightened out from the bottom up. Yeah, that's great. How long will this systematic review, how long will it take for them to do it? You know, I think it takes a minimum of six months to do one of these, and they could stretch it out for over a year. And, so and I imagine will. that's something that they are going to do because yeah. they really want it all to be very hush-hush and quiet and, you know, just... Yeah. I. It's amazing that they said they're going to do it. I'm just super skeptical. We'll just have to um, see um, And often with the research, and uh, I, I was no ninja research when I first got into this, but I used to see the leaps of logic. So you'd look at the data and it'd be all making sense. And then you'd look at the conclusion, you go, sorry, what? They've just jumped. Mm. And they, yeah. like, they'd have very paltry evidence and say, and then they would happily conclude. And so now puberty blockers for all. I'm obviously right. being facetious, yeah. but you know mm -hmm. what I mean? That the, the, the leap of logic that can happen in a conclusion, I didn't know would ever pass review. I know, I know. Yeah. The, the peer review process really seems to be broken because it succeeded in getting my paper that I submitted to the journal Pediatrics, you know, killed because one reviewer said that my statement um, that if you tell a small child that when they're older, the doctors will change their sex, it's not true and it's cruel to imply that we can. One reviewer responded saying, well, we do, we do make a lot of changes. Don't we kind of like change their sex? And then another reviewer said that this statement would be upsetting to pediatric readers of the oh, journal yeah, Pediatrics. Oh, yeah, I remember when you said that. And so it's, just, pediatric it's readers. just so crazy. <laughs> yes. The, yeah. And it's like, look, <laughs> I, like I was <laughs> a, 
I was a bright kid, like I was a gifted <laughs> child, and I read above my grade level, but I was not reading medical journals, not even in high school. Let's pretend <laughs> that a lot of pediatric readers did read medical journals. <laughs> yeah. Isn't it actually important that they know yeah. the truth? Yeah. I mean, th- this they whole know thing the truth. is so upsetting because... Like, yeah, we is. turn to doctors to tell us, like, what are the actual risks of this we or do. that intervention? Like, what would happen if I took this drug? What would happen if I had this surgery? What's mm-hmm. the best case scenario and worst case scenario? The yeah. best case scenario is we'll change a lot of your features, but you're not going to become a boy. You'll never, right? ever, ever, ever become no, a literal can't. boy. And that's where, it gets, that's where it gets so upsetting to me as a pediatrician, because we're doing social transitions on children who are less than eight and if they're less than eight they really think that they're gonna that they're gonna be completely changed in a magical way yeah you know and so you have little boys who you know wanted to wear skirts and paint their fingernails and 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 they've been transitioned and they ask questions like when i'm a mommy and and nobody nobody corrects them yeah everybody just shuts up at that point you're referring to something called sex constancy, which is like a yeah. cognitive ability that comes online around between age like six and eight. And before that, kids literally think that if a boy puts on a dress and a wig, he's become a girl. They think that literally. Yeah, yeah, and, for real. You know, yeah. especially with the kind of bizarre blurring of, of categorical definitions when we say things like sex is a spectrum you could even confuse a 12 year old or a 13 year old or maybe a 35 year old you know what i mean or an adult all of this is really not helpful because it's genuinely Mm -hmm. confusing facts of life like no matter how much intervention somebody has no you're always still i mean i can't remember who had this metaphor but they they likened it to like a river and you know you you get onto a boat to cross the river and nobody tells you that you're never getting to the other side oh you're just going to spend your the rest of your life in that boat oh my god that's such a good analogy yeah that's tough harsh yeah yeah whoa it feels like okay so yeah 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 no, no, go ahead. It, it just feels like, you know, when we first had Stephen Levine on, he, 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 did, he was incredibly eloquent and he talked about the chain of trust and how we were mm-hmm. all, you know, and I know I'm repeating myself, but then we had you and Stephen on and now we're having you on and it all roads lead to we are reliant on this research to, to, to serve children well, to serve people well. That's yeah. the entire basis of medicine is to kind of do our best, to do no harm. You know, least invasive first. All these fundamental principles since Plato. Mm. And um, it it just feels like you said, we're living in an upside down world. Does this give you cause for hope? I mean, when we think back about like when I got into this world in 2016, this Mm -hmm. was not even something I could ever imagine happening. Yeah. And the f- yeah. there may not be like we don't know how they're going to conduct the systematic review. We don't know who's going to be put in charge of it. Like there's a lot of unknowns and mm-hmm. their statement was not really uh, increasing my sense of confidence. But but True. I still think we're moving in a direction where at least yes. the lack of evidence is starting to be acknowledged. So mm-hmm. do you feel hopeful about this, Julia? I do. I do feel hopeful about this. I think a lot is happening. 
I mean, now over in Europe, we've got Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, you know, like all the Nordic countries have, have reversed course totally. on this. Yeah. And, um, and England. And so it's going to be harder and harder to maintain this fiction that the only people who are worried about this are right wingers yeah. who hate, you know, who hate trans people, who hate gay people, who, you know, who yeah. want everyone to be married with uh, eight kids. Because yeah. that's not, that's definitely not where I'm coming from. Yeah. I'm actually worried that we have pre gay children and we're messing up their bodies. Yeah. Well, it's all to play for. So when should we look out for, or when should the listeners look out for the AAP systematic review? If you were like being realistic in and around. I think that, that we'll hear something about it in a year, in August of 2024. Right. We they'll might have they'll you probably back. say that they're, <laughs> I would guess that in August of 2024, they're going to get, uh, you know, request for information from the New York Times, from the Wall Street Journal, and they're going to say, oh, we're working on it. Yeah. It takes a while to do a good review, and we're still working on it. That that would be my prediction. Okay. Oh. Yeah. Well, we'll okay. be here probably. We'll be, we'll be following Hopefully. them. Hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> we will be yeah. on it. Yeah, we'll yeah. all be after them, and Julia will be leading the charge. <laughs> How are you yeah. getting on? Insistent, consistent, and persistent. <laughs> always. You always, always have been, Julia. Yeah. All right. Well, if people right. are still here, we want to thank you for sticking with this long whistle-stop tour of AAP history. Um, and please like and subscribe on YouTube. It really helps us to get the podcast out to more people and share this important information so that we can all kind of keep track of what's going on. So... Julia, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you. Thanks. And th thanks for all your work in this. It's phenomenal. Yeah, thank you. We'll keep trying. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.